So this morning I want to ask for a little audience participation. So if you would give me a little feedback here to begin with, I hope you give me a little feedback throughout, but let's start by me making a statement and you deciding whether or not it's controversial or not. So controversial, not controversial. Ready? Okay. The Bible is a Christian book. Sounds like we're speaking in tongues. (laughs) Well, if you said not controversial, I'm with you. Of course it's not controversial. Christians, I mean, you're on the side, side of the angels, right? You're on the side of the saints. Christians believe that the Bible is a Christian book. Uh, today you came to Omaha Bible Church. That assumes Omaha Bible Christian Church. We believe the Bible is a Christian book. Old Testament and New Testament. Now, if you said that's a controversial statement, I think you're right. Because there are some, some even today, some who are very influential, even when it comes to evangelicals, who would be Bible believers, who would say that the Bible is not a Christian book. In particular, they have the Old Testament in mind, and they would be the same kinds of people who would say, we shouldn't, as Christians, do Christ-centered preaching, especially when it comes to the Old Testament. And so, with that in mind, um, we're going to begin a brief series on interpretive isms, okay? It's probably not a good marketing campaign, but uh, interpretive isms, these strange, kooky, non-helpful approaches to interpreting the Bible that oftentimes Christians sign up for, promote, or are misled by is what we're going to begin talking about. And so we're looking at these isms. I have eight of them on my list. Guess how many we did first service and second service? One. <laughs> so we're going to do the first ism, and I think it's the longest one. And so I have, I, I'm ready to do two, but that would be bad for next week. So we'll do one of these isms um, that reflect a, a non-helpful way for Christians to interpret their Bibles is what we're doing. We've done these isms things before. This one's different because it's dealing with Bible interpretation. Uh, I'll let you know that we'll get back to our study of the gospel according to Matthew. That's normal for us to be in the book of the Bible. Uh, verse by verse, we'll do chapter 19 here in a couple, two, three weeks. Um, when we get back to it. Um, but one of the callings of a pastor is, according to, to, according to Titus 1, is you have to promote sound doctrine, healthy teaching, healthy, healthy doctrine, but you also have to be committed to refuting those who contradict sound doctrine. And so this is kind of one of those refutation series where we need to say these things aren't healthy, these things aren't helpful, and as a pastor, as an elder, as a shepherd, I want to help you to be aware of some of these isms. So today we're going to talk about a dangerous ism when it comes to interpreting the Bible. I'll call it naturalism, okay? Naturalism. So if you're taking notes, it's the only one we'll do today. Um, next week we'll look at moralism, but today is naturalism. Uh, I'll let you know as well, this is the fruit, this is the overflow of our Tuesday morning theology for breakfast men's ministry, because we've been studying hermeneutics this year, which is the science and art of Bible interpretation, and so this is, this is review, men, if you're a part of Tuesday mornings, you're welcome, Um, you can say it to your wife if you're married or your friend, this is what we, this is what we're learning about on Tuesday mornings, 
Uh, I'll try not to say hermeneutics today because I don't want you to think I'm speaking in tongues, um, but it is just the technical uh, label for the science and art of Bible interpretation. And we've been looking at some of these strange things that have happened throughout history in our class. So I thought I would share some of them on Sunday morning because on Tuesday mornings, I keep leaving thinking this would be good for the whole church. And so um, we're between chapter 18 and 19 in Matthew. So we're going to do some of the isms, one of them today, naturalism. Now, Christians are not naturalists. We're what? We're supernaturalists. We're not naturalists. Uh, Naturalism would say, if you can't reproduce it in a lab, um, then it can't be true. Well, Christians believe in things like the bodily resurrection. We, we believe um, in the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus. Uh, you can't reproduce that in a lab. We're supernaturalists. We're not naturalists. And if you're thinking in terms of, of history on the calendar, um, Christians have, generally speaking, always believed in a supernatural approach to the Bible. Um, of course, we, we believe the Bible is supernatural. It's a Christian book, Old Testament, New Testament. That's been the common thing to do up until a time when naturalism really influenced Christian thinking and Christian scholarship. And that would have happened when Theology for Breakfast Men <laughs> that would have happened around the time of the Enlightenment. So the Enlightenment, I think of 1700s is probably just a good way to kind of remember if you're looking for a time frame. With the Enlightenment came good things. Some really good things happened with the Enlightenment, right? Even, even in religion, good things happened to an extent because people were freed from the abuses of all kinds of things done in the name of God uh, that were being done. And so really good things happen. I'm not an anti-enlightenment person. I'm a pro-enlightenment person. But when it comes to Christian thinking and Christian scholarship, after the enlightenment, some Christians started to approach the Bible as naturalists. Okay? They forgot their Christian heritage. They succumbed to the pressure. They bought the wrong hermeneutics books. They went to the right schools that taught them the wrong things sometimes, and they started approaching the Bible as naturalists. So, some of you look nervous because I haven't given you a Bible verse to look at yet. I'm with you. So if you're kind of doing this because you get, you get nervous like I do and I get the nervous twitch, um, coming to church and no Bible, if, if it'll just calm your nerves a little bit, you can turn to Ephesians 1 if you'd like. Um, I kid a little bit, um, but we are going to be there. We're going to look at other passages first, but that will be the main passage we look at this morning because here's what I would like to do. Talk about some of the features of naturalism, okay, post-enlightenment naturalism, and then what we'll do is open our Bibles and say, answered, answered biblically, answered biblically, answered biblically. Now we're refreshed. Now we're motivated to not interpret the Bible like naturalists because Christians are naturalists, okay? So, three features of naturalism, and then we'll look at the Bible to see the supernaturalism side of things, and we're going to be committed to looking at the Bible as a Christian book, all of it, and interpreting it in a Christ-centered way. Am I doing okay so far? Tracking with me? I know it gets confusing when I have one point and then three points. Um, So, naturalism today, three features of naturalism, then we're going to open our Bibles and say... Oh, no, you didn't. Okay. <laughs> is what we're going to do. Um, I'm getting tired. after doing. I, I, I didn't do that first hour or second hour. I won't do it third hour, but I need a little comic relief. Naturalism teaches lots of things that are contrary to Christianity. Three features I want to highlight. Number one, 
They would deny that God is, that God is. But if they would say, okay, we'll grant you a God, He's not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. He's not sovereign. Okay? He's not in charge. He's not in control. He's not all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, sovereign. Okay? That would be a feature of naturalism. Let's, we're we're going to see the positive side of that and see that none of those things are true according to the Bible. So why, we, why would we as Christians want to think like that? We wouldn't. Another feature of naturalism, post-enlightenment thinking that affects people, uh, the way people interpret the Bible sometimes, but shouldn't. Second feature is that God does not have a purpose. That God does not have a will. Let me put it another way, that God does not have a decree. This is what I want to have happen, and this is what will most certainly happen. Okay, that would be a decree. Kings issue decrees. I've never issued a decree other than in my own house, don't walk on the carpet with your shoes on, and my kids, when I'm not watching, do it anyway. So I'm not all wise, all powerful uh, at upholding the decree in Pat's kingdom. Okay? But if we have a God who's all-wise, all-powerful, all-knowing, and He says, this is my will, we would say that's a decree because it is actually going to happen because of who He is. Okay? But naturalism would say, if there is a God, He wouldn't be all-wise, all-knowing, uh, wise, uh, sovereign. And if, he, if there is one, He doesn't have a decree. This is what's going to happen, and more significantly, and it's going to center around my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They would say, no, can't be. That's not how it is. Third feature, then we'll go to answering these, would be that the Bible is not inspired revelation. That the Bible is not God-breathed. Naturalism would say the Bible was written by a bunch of different human authors, but not controlled by one divine author in charge of the whole thing. Christians would say, we believe in a lot of different, a whole bunch of different human authors, but orchestrating, in control, overseeing is one divine author, and the one divine author is in charge of the whole of Scripture. Okay? Ready? Ready to move on? Let's look at the text. Let's, let's look at the text and let's answer each one of these things, each one of these um, features of naturalism that influence the way we interpret the Bible. Before we actually do it, I'll let you know to kind of up the, the interest level. Um, I think most hermeneutics, there I said it, most interpretation books and articles I've read and been, have been recommended to me by evangelicals who believe the Bible is true, I, I might be an overstatement, I think most of them in my life have assumed naturalism have tried to get me to interpret the Bible like a naturalist. That's pretty strange. So Bible believers, evangelicals who are supernaturalists, trying to get me to interpret the Bible, and you, to interpret the Bible as a naturalist. I think this shouldn't be so. This is why I get worked up about this. It's why we're doing a whole Sunday morning on the first one, and it's naturalism if we're going to refute that first principle that there is not a God who's all-wise, all-powerful, sovereign over all, where would be a good place to start in the Bible by refuting that? Let's be really obvious. Super obvious. Where might we want to start? Where might we want to begin? 
right? I would just go to Genesis 1, right? And you're going, yeah, I would go to Genesis 1. I didn't even have to write it down. I feel like a scholar, (laughs) right? In the beginning, God. So again, a naturalist might not believe that, but we're Christians. I'm appealing to you. This isn't, I'm not trying to do apologetics toward unbelievers. I'm appealing to you as professing Christians. We believe in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. And so then we have creation and we have creatures. And so even by, by definition, he's different. By, by, by the fact that he's God and they're not, and it's his creation, he's sovereign, so he's wise enough to do it, he's powerful enough to do it, he is the creator, and so he's the sovereign, he can do whatever he wants with his creation, so we can start there. Now, lest, be, lest we be here all day, I'll rapid fire give you other texts. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Psalm 136, 5, to him who by understanding or wisdom think made the heavens. Acts 4, 24, sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Or the refrain that comes throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament again and again and again and again, living God, living God, living God. I'll use one example, Jeremiah 10, 10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the everlasting King. Romans, I'll use a New Testament text, another one as well. Romans 16, 27. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. I went fast. I didn't have you turn to a lot of passages because I think that one should be a super no-brainer for Christians. There is a God. He's wise. He's powerful. He's sovereign. So let's interpret the Bible Like there is a God, he's wise, he's powerful, he's sovereign. This leads us to the next point that's related. He has a purpose. He has a will. He has a decree. And that decree, that purpose, that will centers upon his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the ultimate. Christ is the apex. Christ is the end game. Christ is where all of it's headed. That's according to the sovereign, wise, all-knowing, sovereign God. It's in Ephesians 1. I hope you're ready for Ephesians 1. It doesn't get much better than Ephesians 1. And the theology of Ephesians 1 makes a huge difference on how you interpret the Bible. Whether or not you think the Bible, all of the Bible is a Christian book. Whether or not you interpret the Bible, all of the Bible, in a Christ-centered way. I have friends who don't think you should interpret the Bible in a Christ-centered way. If I were to leave today and post some tweets on Twitter uh, about Christ-centered preaching, I'll have friends who went to what we would consider to be good schools that believe the Bible is true that give me all kinds of pushback. Because you shouldn't interpret the Bible in a Christ-centered way, especially not the Old Testament. Well, you know, here's what I do on Twitter now. I just post blindly. It's, it's awesome. You just post and don't read the comments. I'm, it's so good for your sanctification. Now, now, sometimes I'm tempted late at night and I, I log on and I start reading. It's not good for my sanctification. Just a, just a little tip, just in case you came here to learn about Twitter. <laughs> this is no small matter. Should we interpret the Bible in a Christian way, in a Christ-centered way? Lots of people say no. 
I'm going to do my very best to convince you in light of Ephesians 1 that we definitely should interpret the whole Bible in a Christ-centered way. I'm going to do my best. And if I can't convince you through the Apostle Paul, I've got one backup plan. You'll have to wait for my backup plan. Ephesians 1, ready to go? Here we go. Verse 1 says in Ephesians 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And I'm emphasizing by the will of God because he's going to pick that up later. It's a definite emphasis here. He's an apostle by the will of God. And oh, does this God ever have a will, a a plan, a purpose, a decree to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, let's slow down. Even as He, that would be God in our context, even as He, God, chose us in Him, in Christ, when? Before the foundation of the world. And let's stop there before we move past the comma. When did God choose the us in Christ? Before the foundation of the world. And in a little while, we'll look at chapter 3, he refers to this as the eternal purpose. So if we're going to go before the foundation of the world, we're going to go way, we got way back. That's before time as we know it. That, that's a pre-Genesis creation time. Before the foundation of the world, He chose us in Him. Huh, interesting. Before the narrative begins. Before all the stuff that happens after it. There's a plan and a purpose, and the plan and the purpose is tied to us, yes, but more importantly... It's tied to Christ. Before time begins, there's a plan and a purpose that God has, and it's tied to His Son. I hope you're seeing where this is going. After the comma, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. So before God, we would be in a a true, right, spiritual state, obviously because of the virtue of Christ and what He does, not what we do. In love, verse 5 says, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons, notice, through Jesus Christ. So it's a before the foundation of the world plan, decree, will, and it's going to be through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So it centers upon Christ. Verse 7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. I'm going to pause there just for a moment because again, Some of my best friends in life over time have said, well, you shouldn't read the Bible as being about redemption. You should read it as ultimately being about something else. And I'm here to suggest to you that that's nuts. Uh, That's crazy. I realize I heard this week in the news, we're not supposed to say things are crazy. Um, That's crazy. Okay, that's nuts. Right there, before the foundation of the world, God's purpose and plan to be about Christ, in Christ. And he says... In Him we have redemption through His blood. Before time begins, God's decree, God's plan, God's will, His purpose would be for our forgiveness of sins through redemption. So I'm going to read the Bible as a book about redemption. And I think it would be crazy to not read the Bible as a book about redemption. I'm pleading with you. 
through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. According to His purpose. See the emphasis? It just keeps coming up. According to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So purpose, plan, and I'm going to draw you back to that number one feature of naturalism, that God is not all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful, sovereign. Yeah, but if He is, and we've seen in the Bible He is, so Christians think that He is, so if He, that kind of God, has a plan and a purpose and a will, is going to come to pass... It definitely is going to come to pass. And it's definitely, as we're seeing, going to center on Christ. To unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth, in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him. Oh, there's going to be, there's going to be a quiz on this in just a moment. So please pay attention to verse 11, okay? Who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Please remember that. I wish we had more time. We would read the next handful of verses. We don't, but I do want to at least point out in verse 13 that this is also involving the Holy Spirit sealing us uh, who are part of this plan and purpose of God. So I just wanted to bring it up because you have the triune God before the foundation of the world, a plan to redeem forgiveness through His Son applied by the Spirit. It's an amazing thing. It is absolutely Amazing to consider what God has done. And it's contrary to naturalism, contrary to post-enlightenment approaches to interpreting the Bible, but we as Christians say, this is glorious. This is amazing. This is absolutely amazing. Here's, here are some of my questions. When was the origin of this plan? Before the foundation of the world, right? Pre-time as we know it, there is a plan and a purpose. So I'm going to remember that when I read my Bible. God had a plan and a purpose. And the plan and the purpose would center on Christ. It absolutely would center on Christ. Not just Christ in general, but Christ as a redeemer. To redeem His people, right? To redeem those who He had predestined, those whom He had chosen. So there is a plan that exists before the foundation of the world, centers on Christ's redemptive work for a particular people. So I've got all that straight in my head. Here's the quiz. How do we explain the in-between stuff? Just kind of leave it up to chance because, you know, you just don't know. I'm a naturalist. Just a bunch of miscellaneous things that go from Genesis, Genesis to Malachi, that Italian theologian. I love, I love new Christians and how they pronounce things. It's Malachi, um, last book of the Old Testament. So what about all the stuff Genesis to Malachi? Oh, not really sure. A bunch of human authors, a bunch of miscellaneous things, lots of character studies. What did verse 11 tell us that could be, bring light to this? Who works all things according to his will? Ah, let's think like Christians when we read the Bible. This God who has a plan and a purpose that's going to center on His Son, when He comes, no doubt, we have to have incarnation, we have to have His work done, cross work, resurrection, perfect life, all those things, ascension. But in the in-between time, it's not just maybe a few miscellaneous prophecies. This God who is at work, because He's alive and sovereign and wise and engaged in His creation, causes 
all of this. How does he say it again in verse 11? Who works all... I was thinking of Romans 8 for a second. Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I didn't say it right before. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will. So I'm not crazy. I'm acting like a Christian when I would want to read the Old Testament and see, huh, I wonder how God is working all things according to the counsel of his will, which centers on his son Christ. I'm reading the Bible like a Christian. I'm reading the Bible like a Christian. I hope that makes sense to you. This doesn't mean we're looking for allegory. It doesn't mean we're looking for hidden meaning. But we are looking for God having a plan and a purpose that centers on His Son, Jesus. All things. This is why sometimes we talk about, we we read the Old Testament and we, we look for shadows. Like in Hebrews, it talks about shadows. Colossians 2 talks, talks about this as well. Romans 5 talks about Adam being a type of Christ. You have the type and the antitype. You have the shadow and the substance. And we're not getting creative and acting loosey-goosey uh, manipulative if we're looking for these things because we have a God who before time begins has a plan and a purpose that's going to center on His Son. I would expect all of the in-between things to somehow be a part of the unfolding of the drama. I would want you to expect that too. Romans 5, Adam is a type. Or how about this even? By the way, if if you really want a good dose of all of this, read read Hebrews. Read Hebrews chapter 10. You've got the priests. Fail, 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 fail. They just keep dying. There's one ultimate high priest whose work is done and he sets down. So these are in anticipation, but they weren't going to be the end game. But they're anticipating one who is greater, who was talked about even before any priest was ever born. Maybe while we're talking about Adam and types and shadows, in Luke chapter 3, guess who is called son of God? Adam. Adam is a son of God. I didn't say the son of God. Adam in Luke chapter 3 is a son of God. In Hosea 11.1, who else is a son of God? Israel, the nation, is a son of God in Hosea 11.1. And we've been learning in Matthew's gospel account... There is the ultimate son, right? And what God says to him, he didn't say to Adam. And what God says to him, he didn't say to Israel. Behold, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Adam is a son. Israel is a son. But they're not the ultimate son. The ultimate son is the Lord Jesus Christ. But these other sons were meant to anticipate. Colossians chapter 2 verse 17, these are a shadow. He's talking about the Mosaic world. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. We could look at Passover. We have the Passover in the old covenant world. And 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Christ is our Passover lamb. The Exodus event, according to uh, Micah chapter 6, the Exodus event, God um, redeems his people out of Egypt. Well, in Colossians, it's Jesus redeeming us not out of Egypt, not out of slavery uh, from Pharaoh, but out of slavery from sin. So if you're wondering why I get all exercised about this and all worked up about this, I've been told too many times and paid too much money to be told not to do it this way and that it's dangerous. And I'm suggesting to you that it's more dangerous to interpret the Bible like an unbeliever 
than it is to interpret it like a believer. I, my prayer and my hope is that Ephesians 1 causes you to never, if need be, read the whole Bible the same way again. Before time begins, God has a decree, has a purpose. It centers around His Son, and He's working all things after the counsel of that will. I'm thankful for, in recent days, the evangelicalism, uh, Bible-believing people um, have, have been rebuked about this a little bit. I'm thankful for people like my friend Matthew Barrett, who was here last fall for our conference. He's going to be here next fall as well. He's written an academic book addressing this issue, saying, in a sense, I hope what I'm saying, listen, why in the world do we learn hermeneutics from post-enlightenment unbelievers? Can we read the Bible like Christians? who believe in an all-powerful God who has a plan and a purpose and it centers around His Son. I'm I'm signing up. I'm all for it. And He's not the only one. Now multiple books are being written and I'm thankful because the church always drifts in one way or another that we're getting a good corrective. And I hope, I'm I'm willing to say, okay, uncle, um, let's read the Bible like Christians. Let's read the Bible like Christians. Jesus says, I am the, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. Was it the believers who, or the unbelievers who were confused? The unbelievers were confused. Well, this, this, this temple it took us a long time to build this temple. Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm, I'm the one. I'm the ultimate place to meet with God. That will be no more. It's in anticipation of me. Oh, Hebrews 10, we didn't have time to go there. I wanted to go there. There are other places. Um, now, I have a backup plan. If you're not convinced by the Apostle Paul and my pleading with you to read the Bible like a Christian and interpret the Bible like a Christian, where else could I go to try to get you to do this? Well, in church, when they ask you questions and you don't know the answer, what should you say? Jesus. (laughs) Jesus is the answer. And so in just a little while, I'm going to appeal to Jesus because I think Jesus is going to say, you know what? Actually, this is how you should read the Bible. And we're going to look at John chapter 5 and Luke chapter 24. And, and I think if you don't listen to me, you won't listen to Paul. Listen to Jesus. But we should come to that third feature. I got a little ahead of myself. And then we're going to wrap up. That third feature of naturalism, this enlightenment approach to interpreting the Bible, would be the Bible is not inspired. It's not God-breathed, not God-controlled. Christians say... It's God-breathed, it's God-controlled, and therefore there can be one unifying message even amidst all of the diversity. We know what the one unifying message is going to be. It's going to be around the sun. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. It'll be our last text. 2 Peter 1. I could have had you go to 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 because that's the classic, but I want to move you out of your comfort zone. 2 Peter chapter 1. As you're turning there, Bible-believing Christians have historically believed and believe now that there are many human authors. Okay? God told Moses, write. Okay? So, human author. Um, The Apostle Paul in Romans 1 says, I, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 1, chapter, or verse 7, to the Romans. Human author. Peter refers to Paul's writings as Scripture. 
But it's definitely Paul's writing. And so as serious Bible people, we would want to pay attention to Paul's writing and see how Paul writes differently than Peter writes, not when it comes to content, but when it comes to style. Uh, They write differently than Moses writes because they're separated by culture, they're separated by time, they're separated by language. And so serious Bible students pay attention to human authors. We want to know what their intent was. We want to know the surrounding and the setting, and we want to give uh, a lot of attention to those things. But sometimes, even in evangelical Bible colleges and seminaries and churches, that's all we're taught to emphasize. That reflects a post-enlightenment, naturalistic, unbelieving worldview. Historically, Christians have said, human authors, there's lots of different human authors. (laughs) But we know, because of 2 Peter 1... There's one divine author orchestrating the whole so they have a unified message, a complementary message. Let's go ahead and look at it, if you would, in chapter 1, verse 21. This is deluxe when it comes to this matter. For no prophecy, but in this context, I think he means revelation from God. For no prophecy was ever produced, so now we're talking about origin, by the will of man... So yes, Paul wrote, yes, Moses wrote, was ever produced by the will of man, but men, so there is, there is human authorship, but men spoke from God. See, there's a driving force, there's an orchestrating force, and he even elaborates more on this to make it even clearer, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And he uses that uh, a nautical image where a ship is carried along because the wind's in its sails. The power comes from the wind, not from the sails or the ship. God standing behind human authors, orchestrating, maneuvering, making sure that it's not the human will, it's ultimately the divine will. What makes this important? All of these human authors throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament... They write different things and bring different emphases. But Christians believe that there's ultimately one divine author who's in charge of the whole thing. And so when we get to the New Testament, it's not, oh, surprise ending. Never saw it coming. The one divine author has been orchestrating all along and we know he's capable of doing it. Powerful, wise, And we know it centers around his son. Old Testament in anticipation. New Testament in fulfillment. But we hopefully will read the Bible like Christians. So I can say, you know, it's interesting how, like Peter would, this human author writes and they write truthfully, but they don't seem to understand the details. That's right. But the one behind it always understood the details. And he always had central to the whole thing, his son. Now, if you don't believe me, back up. John chapter 5, verse 46. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. Moses? Moses wrote of Jesus? Huh. Apparently, that's what Jesus thinks. I think Jesus is the answer. Luke chapter 24, verse 44, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Luke 24, 25, Jesus says this to his disciples. 
His Jewish disciples, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So we're going to have a little hermeneutical scolding. You guys don't understand that ultimately this is all about me. And so he does his hermeneutic seminar to help them to understand there was a plan, there was a purpose, the drama unfolds, it's ultimately finding its apex in Christ. Let's end this way. I'm not suggesting that you should try to get creative and find Jesus in every piece of wood because Jesus was crucified on a cross. That would be allegory. That would be fanciful interpretation. It's been done before. It's not a good look. It's not what I'm promoting. But I am promoting and encouraging you to not read the Bible like an unbeliever and to read the Bible like you know God has a purpose and He works all things according to the counsel of His will and central to the whole thing is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so starting in Genesis, working your way all the, all the way through Malachi, I'm looking for signs, whether it's through shadows, types, figures, but I'm definitely looking because I'm believing in a God who before any of it started, before there was a Moses, there was a plan for it to be about Christ. Okay? doesn't mean it's easy. Sometimes it's hard. Uh, an example I use a lot, and I'll use it here, I apologize if I've used it more than a hundred times since you've been a member of this church, but I'll use the book of Esther. What do you do with the book of Esther? Did you know that the book of Esther never mentions the name God one time? Not once. What's Esther about? Well, probably about a lot of things. Esther's about a woman who's in the wrong place at the right time. A Jewish woman who's with a pagan Gentile, the wrong place at the right time. And while it might be about other things, things that are worth us studying, the unfolding drama of redemption in Christ, ah, I know what it's about. The king wants to annihilate all the Jews. And if all of the Jews are annihilated... We have no Messiah. We have no Christ. Because He comes in the Jewish line. So while it might be about other things, it's definitely about that. That might not be worth 52 weeks of sermons. But it would be worth one week, if not more. In one way or another, everything that happens, whether it's in the book of Esther or Nehemiah, or somewhere else, has got to be a part of the plan and the purpose. One divine author orchestrating the whole thing, not just of Scripture, but of history, redemptive history. I'm looking to see how this plays a role in the whole. And you know what's going to happen as a result? You're going to do what you're supposed to do. And I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. And that is to give all praise, worship, and glory to the one who is worthy. And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. This actually will fuel worship, is what it will do. Next week, what we're going to do is look at moralism. And these are two peas in a pod, um, if you will. It'll be quick. But moralism is what post-enlightenment unbelievers, or those they influenced, were left with when they came to the Old Testament. 
and even the New Testament. Because if you don't believe that there is one all-powerful sovereign God who has a plan and a purpose that's unfolding that's ultimately about His Son, what are you going to do with the Old Testament? Be a better Esther. But if you pay attention to the details, that's not a very good look. Well, be a, be, be a good David, except for, for where you shouldn't be. Theological liberalism would be the fathers and mothers of our beloved character studies. Because if it's not about Christ, you got to make it about you. And so we've got to see where we can be like this person and not like that person. Pretty strange stuff. Pretty strange stuff. Christians have believed, believe, I'm encouraging you to believe that the Bible ultimately, with all of its figures, with all of its features, ultimately is about Christ. Is about Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for our time together looking at these things. We certainly don't have them all figured out, but Lord, may we join the great tradition of Christians and repent if need be and not approach the Bible like we're not Christians. Um, Encourage us to be better Bible readers and thinkers looking for things um, that would honor Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. We are dismissed. Have a great day.